Part Second of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad The Isabels, Chapter 7, Section 2 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part Second, The Isabels, Chapter 7, Section 2 I have brought that sour-faced English doctor in Senora Gould's carriage, said Nostromo. I doubt if, with all his wisdom, he can save the padrona this time. They have sent for the children, a bad sign, that. He sat down at the end of a bench. She wants to give them her blessing, I suppose. Dazedly, Decoud observed that he must have fallen sound asleep, and Nostromo said, with a vague smile, that he had looked in at the window and had seen him lying still across the table with his head on his arms. The English Signora had also come in the carriage and went upstairs at once with the doctor. She had told him not to wake up Don Martin yet, but when they sent for the children he had come into the café. The half of the horse with its half of the rider swung round outside the door. The torch of tow and resin in the iron basket which was carried on a stick at the saddle-bow flared right into the room for a moment and Mrs. Gould entered hastily with a very white, tired face. The hood of her dark blue cloak had fallen back. Both men rose. "'Tessa wants to see you, Nostromo,' she said. The Capitas did not move. Decoud, with his back to the table, began to button up his coat. "'The silver, Mrs. Gould, the silver,' he murmured in English. "'Don't forget that the Esmeralda garrison have got a steamer.' They may appear at any moment at the harbour entrance. The doctor says there is no hope, Mrs Gould spoke rapidly, also in English. I shall take you down to the wharf in my carriage and then come back to fetch away the girls. She changed swiftly into Spanish to address Nostromo. Why are you wasting time? Old Giorgio's wife wishes to see you. I am going to her, Senora, muttered the Capitaz. Dr Monigham now showed himself bringing back the children. To Mrs. Gould's inquiring glance he only shook his head and went outside at once, followed by Nostromo. The horse of the torch-bearer, motionless, hung his head low and the rider had dropped the reins to light a cigarette. The glare of the torch played on the front of the house crossed by the big black letters of its inscription in which only the word Italia was lighted fully. The patch of wavering glare reached as far as Mrs. Gould's carriage waiting on the road, with the yellow-faced, portly Ignacio apparently dozing on the box. By his side, Basilio, dark and skinny, held a Winchester carbine in front of him with both hands and peered fearfully into the darkness. Nostromo touched lightly the doctor's shoulder. "'Is she really dying, Senor Doctor?' Yes, said the doctor, with a strange twitch of his scarred cheek, and why she wants to see you I cannot imagine. She has been like that before, suggested Nostromo, looking away. Well, Capitaz, I can assure you she will never be like that again, snarled Dr. Monigham. You may go to her or stay away. There is very little to be got from talking to the dying, but she told Donna Emilia, in my hearing, that she has been like a mother to you ever since you first set foot ashore here. See, and she never had a good word to say for me, to anybody. It is more as if she could not forgive me for being alive, and such a man too, as she would have liked her son to be. Maybe, exclaimed a mournful deep voice near them. 
Women have their own ways of tormenting themselves. Giorgio Viola had come out of the house. He threw a heavy black shadow in the torchlight, and the glare fell on his big face, on the great bushy head of white hair. He motioned the capitas indoors with his extended arm. Dr. Monigham, after busying himself with a little medicament box of polished wood on the seat of the landau, turned to old Giorgio and thrust into his big, trembling hand one of the glass-stoppered bottles out of the case. Give her a spoonful of this now and then in water, he said. It will make her easier. And there is nothing more for her? asked the old man patiently. No, not on earth, said the doctor with his back to him, clicking the lock of the medicine case. Nostromo slowly crossed the large kitchen, all dark but for the glow of a heap of charcoal under the heavy mantle of the cooking range, where water was boiling in an iron pot with a loud bubbling sound. Between the two walls of a narrow staircase, a bright light streamed from the sick room above, and the magnificent Capitas de Cargadore, stepping noiselessly in soft leather sandals, bushy-whiskered, his muscular neck and bronzed chest bare in the open check shirt, resembled a Mediterranean sailor just come ashore from some wine or fruit-laden felucca. At the top he paused, broad-shouldered, narrow-hipped and supple, looking at the large bed with a white couch of state, with a profusion of snowy linen, amongst which the padrona sat unpropped and bowed, her handsome black-browed face bent over her chest. A mass of raven hair with only a few white threads in it covered her shoulders. One thick strand, fallen forward, half veiled her cheek. Perfectly motionless in that pose, expressing physical anxiety and unrest, she turned her eyes alone towards Nostromo. The Capitas had a red sash wound many times round his waist, and a heavy silver ring on the forefinger of the hand he raised to give a twist to his moustache. Their revolutions, their revolutions, gasped Signora Teresa. Look, Gian Battista, it has killed me at last. Nostromo said nothing, and the sick woman, with an upward glance, insisted, Look, this one has killed me while you were away fighting for what did not concern you, foolish man. Why talk like this, mumbled the Capitas between his teeth. Will you never believe in my good sense? It concerns me to keep on being what I am, every day alike. You'll never change, indeed, she said bitterly. Always thinking of yourself and taking your pay out in fine words from those who care nothing for you. There was between them an intimacy of antagonism, as close in its way as the intimacy of accord and affection. He had not walked along the way of Teresa's expectations. It was she who had encouraged him to leave his ship in the hope of securing a friend and defender for the girls. The wife of old Georgia was aware of her precarious health and was haunted by the fear of her aged husband's loneliness and the unprotected state of the children. She had wanted to annex that apparently quiet and steady young man, affectionate and pliable, an orphan from his tenderest age, as he had told her, with no ties in Italy except an uncle, owner and master of a felucca, from whose ill usage he had run away before he was fourteen. He had seemed to her courageous, a hard worker, determined to make his way in the world. 
from gratitude and the ties of habit he would become like a son to herself and giorgio and then who knows when linda had grown up ten years difference between husband and wife was not so much her own great man was nearly twenty years older than herself gian battista was an attractive young fellow besides attractive to men women and children just by that profound quietness of personality which like a serene twilight rendered more seductive the promise of his vigorous form and the resolution of his conduct old giorgio in profound ignorance of his wife's views and hopes had a great regard for his young countryman a man ought not to be tame, he used to tell her, quoting the Spanish proverb in defence of the splendid Capitaz. She was growing jealous of his success. He was escaping from her, she feared. She was practical, and he seemed to her to be an absurd spendthrift of these qualities which made him so valuable. He got too little for them. He scattered them with both hands amongst too many people, she thought. He laid no money by. She railed at his poverty his exploits, his adventures, his loves and his reputation, but in her heart she had never given him up, as though, indeed, he had been her son. Even now, ill as she was, ill enough to feel the chill, black breath of the approaching end, she had wished to see him. It was like putting out her benumbed hand to regain her hold. But she had presumed too much on her strength. She could not command her thoughts. They had become dim like her vision. The words faltered on her lips, and only the paramount anxiety and desire of her life seemed to be too strong for death. The capita said, I have heard these things many times. You are unjust, but it does not hurt me. Only now you do not seem to have much strength to talk, and I have but little time to listen. I am engaged in a work of very great moment. She made an effort to ask him whether it was true that he had found time to go and fetch a doctor for her. Nostromo nodded affirmatively. She was pleased. It relieved her sufferings to know that the man had condescended to do so much for those who really wanted his help. It was a proof of his friendship. Her voice became stronger. I want a priest more than a doctor, she said pathetically. She did not move her head. Only her eyes ran into the corners to watch the capitaz standing by the side of her bed. Would you go to fetch a priest for me now? Think, a dying woman asks you. Nostromo shook his head resolutely. He did not believe in priests in their sacerdotal character. A doctor was an efficacious person, but a priest, as priest, was nothing incapable of doing either good or harm. Nostromo did not even dislike the sight of them as old Giorgio did. The utter uselessness of the errand was what struck him most. Padrona, he said, you have been like this before and got better after a few days. I have given you already the very last moments I can spare. Ask Signora Gould to send you one. He was feeling uneasy at the impiety of this refusal. The Padrona believed in priests and confessed herself to them. But all women did that. It could not be of much consequence. And yet his heart felt oppressed for a moment at the thought what absolution would mean to her if she believed in it only ever so little. No matter. It was quite true that he had given her already the very last moment he could spare. You refuse to go, she gasped. 
Ah, you are always yourself indeed. Listen to reason, Padrona, he said. I am needed to save the silver of the mine. Do you hear? A greater treasure than the one which they say is guarded by ghosts and devils on Azuera. It is true. I am resolved to make this the most desperate affair I was ever engaged on in my whole life. She felt a despairing indignation. The supreme test had failed. Standing above her, Nostromo did not see the distorted features of her face, distorted by a paroxysm of pain and anger. Only she began to tremble all over. Her bowed head shook. The broad shoulders quivered. Then, God, perhaps you will have mercy upon me. But do you look to it, man, that you get something for yourself out of it besides the remorse that shall overtake you some day? She laughed feebly. Get the riches at least for once, you indispensable admired Jean Baptiste, to whom the peace of a dying woman is less than the praise of people who have given you a silly name and nothing besides in exchange for your soul and body. The Capitas de Cagatori swore to himself under his breath, Leave my soul alone, Patrona, and I shall know how to take care of my body. Where is the harm of people having need of me? What are you envying me that I have robbed you and the children of? Those very people you are throwing in my teeth have done more for old Giorgio than they ever thought of doing for me. He struck his breast with his open palm. His voice had remained low, though he had spoken in a forcible tone. He twisted his moustaches one after another, and his eyes wandered a little about the room. Is it my fault that I am the only man for their purpose? What angry nonsense are you talking, mother? Would you rather have me timid and foolish, selling watermelons on the marketplace or rowing a boat for passengers along the harbour like a soft Neapolitan without courage or reputation? Would you have a young man live like a monk? I do not believe it. Would you want a monk for your eldest girl? Let her grow. What are you afraid of? You have been angry with me for everything I did for years, ever since you first spoke to me in secret from old Giorgio about your Linda. Husband to one and brother to the other, did you say? Well, why not? I like the little ones and a man must marry sometime, but ever since that time you have been making little of me to everyone. Why? Did you think you could put a collar and chain on me as if I were one of the watchdogs they keep over there in the railway yards? Look there, Patrona. I am the same man who came ashore one evening and sat down in the thatched ranch you lived in at that time, on the other side of the town, and told you all about himself. You were not unjust to me then. What has happened since? I am no longer an insignificant youth. A good name, Giorgio says, is a treasure, Padrona. They have turned your head with their praises, gasped the sick woman. They have been paying you with words. Your folly shall betray you into poverty, misery, starvation. The very lepero shall laugh at you, the great capitaz. Nostromo stood for a time as if struck dumb. She never looked at him. A self-confident, mirthless smile passed quickly from his lips, and then he backed away. His disregarded figure sank down beyond the doorway. 
He descended the stairs backwards with the usual sense of having been somehow baffled by this woman's disparagement of his reputation he had obtained and desired to keep. Downstairs in the big kitchen a candle was burning, surrounded by the shadows of the walls, of the ceiling, but no ruddy glare filled the open square of the outer door. The carriage with Mrs Gould and Don Martin, preceded by the horseman bearing the torch, had gone on to the jetty. Dr Monigham, who had remained, sat on the corner of a hard wood table near the candlestick, his seamed, shaven face inclined sideways, his arms crossed on his breast, his lips pursed up and his prominent eyes glaring stonily upon the floor of black earth. Near the overhanging mantel of the fireplace, where the pot of water was still boiling violently, old Giorgio held his chin in his hand, one foot advanced, as if arrested by a sudden thought. Adios, viejo, said Nostromo, feeling the handle of his revolver in the belt and loosening his knife in its sheath. He picked up a blue poncho lined with red from the table and put it over his head. Adios, look after the things in my sleeping room, and if you hear from me no more, give up the box to Paquita. There is not much of value there except my new serape from Mexico and a few silver buttons on my best jacket. No matter. The things will look well enough on the next lover she gets, and the man need not be afraid I shall linger on earth after I am dead like those gringos that haunt the Azuera. Dr. Monigham twisted his lips into a bitter smile. After old Giorgio, with an almost imperceptible nod and without a word, had gone up the narrow stairs, he said, Why, Capitaz, I thought you could never fail in anything. Nostromo, glancing contemptuously at the doctor, lingered in the doorway rolling a cigarette, then struck a match and after lighting it, held the burning piece of wood above his head till the flame nearly touched his fingers. No wind, he muttered to himself. Look here, senor, do you know the nature of my undertaking? Dr. Monningham nodded sourly. It is as if I were taking up a curse upon me, senor doctor. A man with a treasure on this coast will have every knife raised against him in every place upon the shore. You see that, senor doctor? I shall float along with a spell upon my life till I meet somewhere the northbound steamer of the company and then indeed they will talk about the capitals of the Sulaco Cagadores from one end of America to another. Dr. Monigham laughed his short, throaty laugh. Nostromo turned round in the doorway. But if your worship can find any other man ready and fit for such business, I will stand back. I am not exactly tired of my life, though I am so poor that I carry all I have with myself on my horse's back. You gamble too much, and never say no to a pretty face, Capitaz, said Dr. Monigham with sly simplicity. That's not the way to make a fortune. But nobody that I know ever suspected you of being poor. I hope you have made a good bargain in case you come back safe from this adventure. What bargain would your worship have made? asked Nostromo, blowing the smoke out of his lips through the doorway. Dr Monigham listened up the staircase for a moment before he answered with another of his short, abrupt laughs. 
Ha! Illustrious Capitas, for taking the curse of death upon my back, as you call it, nothing else but the whole treasure would do. Nostromo vanished out of the doorway with a grunt of discontent at this jeering answer. Dr. Monningham heard him gallop away. Nostromo rode furiously in the dark. There were lights in the buildings of the OSN company near the wharf, but before he got there he met the Gould carriage. The horseman preceded it with the torch, whose light showed the white mules trotting, the portly Ignacio driving, and Basilio with the carbine on the box. From the dark body of the Landau, Mrs. Gould's voice cried, They are waiting for you, Capitaz. She was returning, chilly and excited, with Decoud's pocket-book still held in her hand. He had confided it to her to send to his sister. Perhaps my last words to her, he had said, pressing Mrs. Gould's hand. The Capitaz never checked his speed. At the head of the wharf, vague figures with rifles leapt to the head of his horse. Others closed upon him, cargadores of the company posted by Captain Mitchell on the watch. At a word from him they fell back with subservient murmurs, recognising his voice. At the other end of the jetty, near a cargo crane, in a dark group with glowing cigars, his name was pronounced in a tone of relief. Most of the Europeans in Salako were there, rallied round Charles Gould, as if the silver of the mine had been the emblem of a common cause, the symbol of the supreme importance of material interests. They had loaded it into the lighter with their own hands. Nostromo recognised Don Carlos Gould, a thin, tall shape standing a little apart and silent, to whom another tall shape, the engineer-in-chief, said aloud, If it must be lost, it is a million times better that it should go to the bottom of the sea. Martin Decoud called out from the lighter, Au revoir, monsieur, till we clasp hands again over the newborn Occidental Republic. Only a subdued murmur responded to his clear, ringing tones, and then it seemed to him that the wharf was floating away into the night, but it was Nostromo who was already pushing against a pile with one of the heavy sweeps. Decoud did not move. The effect was that of being launched into space. After a splash or two there was not a sound but the thud of Nostromo's feet leaping about the boat. He hoisted the big sail. A breath of wind fanned Decoud's cheek. Everything had vanished but the light of the lantern Captain Mitchell had hoisted upon the post at the end of the jetty to guide Nostromo out of the harbour. The two men, unable to see each other, kept silent till the lighter, slipping before the fitful breeze, passed out between almost invisible headlands into the still deeper darkness of the gulf. For a time the lantern on the jetty shone after them. The wind failed, then fanned up again, but so faintly that the big, half-decked boat slipped along with no more noise than if she had been suspended in the air. We are out in the gulf now, said the calm voice of Nostromo. A moment after, he added, Senor Mitchell has lowered the light. Yes, said Decoud, nobody can find us now. A great recrudescence of obscurity embraced the boat. The sea in the gulf was as black as the clouds above. Nostromo, after striking a couple of matches to get a glimpse of the boat compass he had with him in the lighter, steered by the feel of the wind on his cheek. 
It was a new experience for Deku, this mysteriousness of the great waters spread out strangely smooth, as if their restlessness had been crushed by the weight of that dense night. The Placido was sleeping profoundly under its black poncho. The main thing now for success was to get away from the coast and gain the middle of the gulf before day broke. The Isabels were somewhere at hand. On your left as you look forward, senor, said Nostromo suddenly. When his voice ceased, the enormous stillness without light or sound seemed to affect Deku's sense like a powerful drug. He didn't even know at times whether he were asleep or awake. Like a man lost in slumber, he heard nothing, he saw nothing. Even his hand held before his face did not exist for his eyes. The change from the agitation, the passions and the dangers, from the sights and sounds of the shore, was so complete that it would have resembled death had it not been for the survival of his thoughts. In this foretaste of eternal peace they floated vivid and light, like unearthly clear dreams of earthly things that may haunt the souls freed by death from the misty atmosphere of regrets and hopes. Deku shook himself, shuddered a bit though the air that drifted past him was warm. He had the strangest sensation of his soul having just returned into his body from the circumambient darkness in which land, sea, sky, the mountains and the rocks were as if they had not been. Nostromo's voice was speaking, though he at the tiller was also as if he were not. Have you been asleep, Don Martin? Caramba! If it were possible, I would think that I too have dozed off. I have a strange notion somehow of having dreamt that there was a sound of blubbering, a sound a sorrowing man could make somewhere near this boat, something between a sigh and a sob. Strange, muttered Deku, stretched upon the pile of treasure boxes covered by many tarpaulins. Could it be there is another boat near us in the gulf? We could not see it, you know. Nostromo laughed a little at the absurdity of the idea. They dismissed it from their minds. The solitude could almost be felt. And when the breeze ceased, the blackness seemed to weigh upon Deku like a stone. This is overpowering, he muttered. Do we move at all, Capitas? Not so fast as a crawling beetle tangled in the grass, answered Nostromo and his voice seemed deadened by the thick veil of obscurity that felt warm and hopeless all about them. There were long periods when he made no sound, invisible and inaudible, as if he had mysteriously stepped out of the lighter. In the featureless night, Nostromo was not even certain which way the lighter headed after the wind had completely died out. He peered for the islands. There was not a hint of them to be seen, as if they had sunk to the bottom of the gulf, he threw himself down by the side of Deku at last, and whispered into his ear that if daylight caught them near the Sulaco shore through want of wind, it would be possible to sweep the lighter behind the cliff at the high end of the great Isabel, where she would lie concealed. Deku was surprised at the grimness of his anxiety. To him, the removal of the treasure was a political move. It was necessary for several reasons that it should not fall into the hands of Montero, but here was a man who took another view of this enterprise. The caballeros over there did not seem to have the slightest idea of what they had given him to do. 
Nostromo, as if affected by the gloom around, seemed nervously resentful. Decoud was surprised. The Capitaz, indifferent to those dangers that seemed obvious to his companion, allowed himself to become scornfully exasperated by the deadly nature of the trust put, as a matter of course, into his hands. It was more dangerous, Nostromo said, with a laugh and a curse, than sending a man to get the treasure that people said was guarded by devils and ghosts in the deep ravines of Azuera. Senor, he said, we must catch the steamer at sea. We must keep out in the open looking for her till we have eaten and drunk all that has been put on board here. And if we miss her by some mischance, we must keep away from the land till we grow weak and perhaps mad and die and drift dead until one or other of the steamers of the Campania comes upon the boat with the two dead men who have saved the treasure. That, senor, is the only way to save it. For don't you see, for us to come to land anywhere in a hundred miles along this coast with this silver in our possession is to run the naked breast against the point of a knife. This thing has been given to me like a deadly disease. If men discover it, I am dead, and you too, senor, since you would come with me. There is enough silver to make a whole province rich, let alone a seaboard pueblo inhabited by thieves and vagabonds. Signor, they would think that heaven itself sent these riches into their hands and would cut our throats without hesitation. I would trust no fair words from the best man around the shores of this wild gulf. Reflect that even by giving up the treasure at the first demand, we would not be able to save our lives. Do you understand this or must I explain? No, you needn't explain, said Deku a little listlessly. I can see it well enough myself that the possession of this treasure is very much like a deadly disease for men situated as we are. But it had to be removed from Sulaco, and you were the man for the task. I was, but I cannot believe, said Nostromo, that its loss would have impoverished Don Carlos very much. There is more wealth in the mountain. I have heard it rolling down the chutes on quiet nights when I used to ride to Ranson to see a certain girl after my work at the harbour was done. For years the rich rocks have been pouring down with a noise like thunder, and the miners say there is enough at the heart of the mountain to thunder on for years and years to come. And yet, the day before yesterday, we have been fighting to save it from the mob, and tonight I am sent out with it into this darkness where there is no wind to get away with. As if it were the last lot of silver on earth to get bread for the hungry with. Ha <laughs> ha! Well, I am going to make it the most famous and desperate affair of my life, wind or no wind. It shall be talked about when the little children are grown up and the grown men are old. Ha <laughs> ha! The Monteris must not get hold of it, I am told. Whatever happens to Nostromo, the Capitas, and they shall not have it, I tell you, since it has been tied for safety round Nostromo's neck. I see it, murmured Deku. He saw, indeed, that his companion had his own peculiar view of this enterprise. Nostromo interrupted his reflections upon the way men's qualities are made use of without any fundamental knowledge of their nature by the proposal they should slip the long oars out and sweep the lighter in the direction of the Isabels. It wouldn't do for daylight to reveal the treasure floating within a mile or so of the harbour entrance. The denser the darkness generally, 
the smarter were the puffs of wind on which he had reckoned to make his way, but tonight the gulf under its poncho of clouds remained breathless, as if dead rather than asleep. Don Martin's soft hand suffered cruelly, tugging at the thick handle of the enormous oar. He stuck to it manfully, setting his teeth. He, too, was in the toils of an imaginative existence, and that strange work of pulling a lighter seemed to belong naturally to the inception of a new state, acquired an ideal meaning from his love for Antonia. For all their efforts, the heavily laden lighter hardly moved. Nostromo could be heard swearing to himself between the regular splashes of the sweeps. We are making a crooked path, he muttered to himself. I wish I could see the islands. In his unskilfulness, Don Martin overexerted himself. Now and then a sort of muscular faintness would run from the tips of his aching fingers through every fibre of his body and pass off in a flush of heat. He had fought, talked, suffered mentally and physically, exerting his mind and body for the last forty-eight hours without intermission. He had had no rest, very little food, no pause in the stress of his thoughts and his feelings. Even his love for Antonia, whence he drew his strength and his inspiration, had reached the point of tragic tension during their hurried interview by Don Jose's bedside. And now, suddenly, he was thrown out of all this into a dark gulf, whose very gloom, silence and breathless peace added a torment to the necessity for physical exertion. He imagined the lighter sinking to the bottom with an extraordinary shudder of delight. I am on the verge of delirium, he thought. He mastered the trembling of all his limbs, of his breast, the inward trembling of all his body, exhausted of its nervous force. Shall we rest, Capitaz? he proposed in a careless tone. There are many hours of night yet before us. True, it is but a mile or so, I suppose. Rest your arm, Signor, if that is what you mean. You will find no other sort of rest, I can promise you, since you let yourself be bound to this treasure, whose loss would make no poor man poorer. No, Signor, there is no rest till we find a northbound steamer, or else some ship finds us drifting about, stretched out dead upon the Englishman's silver. Or rather, no, poor Dios, I shall cut down the gunwale with the axe right to the water's edge before thirst and hunger rob me of my strength. By all the saints and devils, I shall let the sea have the treasure rather than give it up to any stranger. Since it was the good pleasure of the caballeros to send me off on such an errand, they shall learn I am just the man they take me for. Decoux lay on the silver boxes, panting. All his active sensations and feelings from as far back as he could remember seemed to him the maddest of dreams. Even his passionate devotion to Antonia, into which he had worked himself up out of the depths of his scepticism, had lost all appearance of reality. For a moment he was the prey of an extremely languid but not unpleasant indifference. I am sure they didn't mean you to take such a desperate view of this affair, he said. What was it then? A joke? snarled the man, who on the pay sheets of the OSN company's establishment in Salako was described as foreman of the wharf against the figure of his wages. Was it for a joke they woke me up from my sleep after two days of street fighting to make me stake my life upon a bad card? 
Everybody knows, too, that I am not a lucky gambler. Yes, everybody knows of your good luck with women, Capitaz, Decoux propitiated his companion in a weary drawl. Look here, Signor, Nostromo went on. I never even remonstrated about this affair. Directly I heard what was wanted, I saw what a desperate affair it must be, and I made up my mind to see it out. Every minute was of importance. I had to wait for you first. Then when we arrived at the Italia Una, old Giorgio shouted to me to go for the English doctor. Later on that poor dying woman wanted to see me as you know. Signor, I was reluctant to go. I felt already this cursed silver growing heavy upon my back, and I was afraid that, knowing herself to be dying, she would ask me to ride off again for a priest. Father Corbelan, who is fearless, would have come at a word, but Father Corbelan is far away, safe with the band of Hernandez and the populace. That would have liked to tear him to pieces, how much incensed against the priests. Not a single fat padre would have consented to put his head out of his hiding place tonight to save a Christian's soul, except perhaps under my protection. That was in her mind. I pretended I did not believe she was going to die, Signor. I refused to fetch a priest for a dying woman. Deku was heard to stir. You did, Capitas, he exclaimed. His tone changed. Well, you know... It was rather fine. You do not believe in priests, Don Martin? Neither do I. What was the use of wasting time? But she, she believes in them. The thing sticks in my throat. She may be dead already. And here we are, floating helpless with no wind at all. Curse on all superstition. She died thinking I deprived her of paradise, I suppose. It shall be the most desperate affair of my life. Decoux remained lost in reflection. He tried to analyse the sensations awakened by what he had been told. The voice of the Capitaz was heard again. Now, Don Martin, let us take up the sweeps and try to find the Isabels. It is either that or sinking the lighter if the day overtakes us. We must not forget that the steamer from Esmeralda with the soldiers may be coming along. We will pull straight on now. I have discovered a bit of candle here, and we must take the risk of a small light to make a course by the boat compass. There is not enough wind to blow it out. May the curse of heaven fall upon this blind gulf. A small flame appeared, burning quite straight. It showed fragmentarily the stout ribs and planking in the hollow, empty part of the lighter. Deku could see Nostromo standing up to pull. He saw him as high as the red sash on his waist, with a gleam of a white-handled revolver and the wooden haft of a long knife protruding on his left side. Deku nerved himself for the effort of rowing. Certainly there was not enough wind to blow the candle out, but its flame swayed a little to the slow movement of the heavy boat. It was so big that with their utmost efforts they could not move it quicker than about a mile an hour. This was sufficient, however, to sweep them amongst the Isabels long before daylight came. There was a good six hours of darkness before them, and the distance from the harbour to the great Isabel did not exceed two miles. Decoux put this heavy toil to the account of the Capitaz's impatience. Sometimes they paused and then strained their ears to hear the boat from Esmeralda. 
In this perfect quietness, a steamer moving would have been heard from far off. As to seeing anything, it was out of the question. They could not see each other. Even the lighter's sail, which remained set, was invisible. Very often they rested. Caramba, said Nostromo suddenly during one of those intervals when they lolled idly against the heavy handles of the sweeps. What is it? Are you distressed, Don Martin? Decoux assured him that he was not distressed in the least. Nostromo for a time kept perfectly still, and then in a whisper invited Martin to come aft. With his lips touching Decoux's ear, he declared his belief that there was somebody else besides themselves upon the lighter. Twice now he had heard the sound of stifled sobbing. Senor, he whispered with awed wonder, I am certain that there is somebody weeping in this lighter. Decoux had heard nothing. He expressed his incredulity. However, it was easy to ascertain the truth of the matter. It is most amazing, muttered Nostromo. Could anybody have concealed himself on board while the lighter was lying alongside the wharf? And you say it was like sobbing, asked Decoux, lowering his voice too. If he is weeping, whoever he is cannot be very dangerous. Clamouring over the precious pile in the middle, they crouched low on the foreside of the mast and groped under the half-deck. Right forward in the narrowest part, their hands came upon the limbs of a man who remained as silent as death. To startle themselves to make a sound, they dragged him aft by one arm and the collar of his coat. He was limp, lifeless. The light of the bit of candle fell upon a round, hook-nosed face with black moustaches and little side-whiskers. He was extremely dirty. A greasy growth of beard was sprouting on the shaven parts of the cheeks. The thick lips were slightly parted, but the eyes remained closed. Decoux, to his immense astonishment, recognised Signor Hirsch, the hide merchant from Esmeralda. Nostromo, too, had recognised him and they gazed at each other across the body, lying with its naked feet higher than its head, in an absurd pretense of sleep, faintness, or death. End of Part Second, The Isabels, Chapter 7, Section 2